one of the interesting ways that we use language is by using oxymorons. And uh, normally oxymorons, you think that basically it's two different ideas kind of combined. And it shouldn't really make sense. But they're actually more common than you think. We use them in everyday language, and I'll give you a few examples. And by making them, we actually communicate something, and somehow we understand what we mean. Here's just a few examples. That meal was awfully good. Awfully is already a change in, in that it used to mean full of awe, and now we use it to mean terrible. But it's used for emphasis. should be an oxymoron to say something's awfully good. We also say things like, that's a definite possibility. I'll give you an exact estimate. This is your only choice. We speak this way and somehow we know exactly what we mean when we say it and what others mean when they say it. Well, the Bible is also full of oxymoron-like sayings as well. For example, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Or what about whoever saves his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Well, our text this morning includes a statement like this that might appear self-contradictory at first, but I think as we examine it more closely, you'll understand the meaning behind it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Mark 9, verse 14. We're going to be looking through verses 14 to 29 this morning. Last week we read the beginning of chapter 9 in which Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a high mountain, and there he gave them a blindingly magnificent display of his glory. And this was done right after Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and be killed and rise again, and even that those who wanted to follow him would have to be prepared to die as well. And so he gives them this display of his glory in part to give them confidence that Jesus would have victory over the grave and that his suffering was not due to any kind of weakness on his part, but was in fact a necessary part of the plan of God to save sinners. Well, this week we hear about what was going on at the bottom of the mountain. So uh, our story picks up right as Jesus and Peter and James and John are coming back down from the mountain. Uh, Before we read our passage this morning... Let's pray one more time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we call upon your name this morning because you have made a promise to us that your word is truth. So we ask that you would sanctify us in it. By your spirit, would you help us to apply the truths of your word to our lives that we would grow in godliness and humility. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mark 9, starting in verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? 
How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that many of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. There's no shortage of excitement in Jesus' life, is there? And it also seems like Jesus can't, leave the disciples for more than two seconds without them finding themselves in some kind of debacle. Uh, Sometimes that's a furious windstorm in the middle of a lake. Other times it's a dispute with characters like the scribes. Just like much of the Gospel of Mark, this text reveals to us more about the person of Jesus and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you're new to this study you'll find that if you read through the Gospel of Mark, what you'll see is that there is nobody else like Jesus. This passage is just one of many examples that show Christ's unique and supernatural authority doing what no man has power to do. And that's what brings me to the main focus of this passage. This passage is all about faith. Not just blind faith or spirituality, but a concrete faith in a specific person. So if you're taking notes, the main idea of the passage is this. The strength of Christ's power is greater than the weakness of our faith. Therefore, we should rely on him in prayer. The strength of Christ's power is greater than the weakness of our faith. Therefore, we should rely on him in prayer. And I'm basically just going to take that main idea and split it up into three points in the order that I think the text brings them out. So in verses 14 through 24, we'll examine the weakness of our faith. In verses 25 through 27, the strength of Christ's power. And in verses 28 and 29, the importance of prayer. And my hope is that as we study this event in Jesus' life, you would see with fresh eyes your need for mercy and that you would cling more closely to the work of Jesus in your life. So point one, the weakness of our faith. So like I said, Jesus, remember, was up on a mountain with the three disciples, and now we're at the point where Jesus comes down with them to reconnect to the rest of the group, and we're pretty much let into the story the same way Jesus or those with him would have been. And this is just 
a great example of the authenticity of, of Mark's authorship. Uh, the, the book was written by John Mark, who was a disciple of Peter. And so he most likely recorded his gospel the same way he heard the stories from Peter, which is why the story is told as if uh, we are with Peter. And, you know, they just go down to the bottom of the mountain. They discover a crowd. And there's ruckus going on. We don't know where this crowd came from. We know that it's the disciples, some scribes. We don't even know what they're arguing about until Jesus asks. I assume Jesus asked the disciples. And he says, what are you arguing about with them? And I assume he's either talking about the rest of the crowd and the disciples or the scribes and the disciples. My guess is the scribes, because if you just look up to verse 11 in chapter 9, you'll see what Jesus was talking about on their journey down the mountain. On their descent down the mountain, they spent time talking about some things that the scribes were teaching. And then what does he find at the bottom? The scribes themselves. And of course, this isn't the first time that the scribes have come around. They're seen many times around Jesus' miracles, testing him, questioning him, spreading rumors about him. Well, they're basically just a prop in this story. They don't really do much of anything So I assume they're just mentioned because they must have been uh, part of the dispute that was going on with the disciples. But look what happens before Jesus even addresses the situation. Verse 15, it says that as soon as the crowd saw Jesus, they ran up to greet him and were greatly amazed. Jesus hadn't even done anything yet, and people are amazed, which is a little different than previously so far in the Gospel of Mark. Normally, he says something shocking or he performs a miracle and people are amazed. But it indicates that Jesus, I think, has basically achieved some kind of ancient Palestinian celebrity status. I really enjoy live music, so occasionally I will go to a concert or two. Most concerts are uh, all really similar. If you've been to one, you know they'll pack out a place and they'll have the first people to play are not the artists that you come to see. They are the openers. And they're usually pretty good. They typically want their music to get out. Maybe they're friends with the main artist. Some people like them. Other people just really want to get to the main act. The the disciples here, they're like the opening act. And they're not doing very good. And so they're causing all kinds of trouble. But when the actual artist that you see, that you go to the concert to see, comes out on stage, what happens? People cheer. They are excited. They have no idea if it's even going to be a good concert. Because maybe they're seeing this person for the first time in their life. And just the excitement and anticipation makes them amazed. That's kind of like what Jesus' presence uh, caused in the people around him up to this point in his ministry. And so then Jesus asks, what's going on? And who answers Jesus when he asks that question? Someone. That's what it says. Someone from the crowd answered him. And I'm amazed when we read stories like this in the Bible in which this man, you know, whoever he was, is a major part of the story and we'll see see later that he's actually a positive example of faith and yet we have absolutely no idea who he is, what his name is, where he came from. It's much like the, the bleeding woman, but even then we knew that she was a Canaanite woman, Syrophoenician. But this, this man is literally unnamed. And what do we learn about Jesus from this interaction? 
that he listens to the nameless man. It's interesting because people with celebrity status or people with lots of power, they typically talk to and spend time with other people with lots of power or lots of fame. They don't pay attention to the normal people as much, so I would expect Jesus to talk to his disciples and his disciples would relay everything that's going on. But Jesus hears the voice from the crowd and he listens to him. So perhaps sometimes you feel like an anonymous stranger to God when you cry out to him. Perhaps you feel invisible or like a nameless person not knowing where else to turn in life. Well, if that's you, I want to show you the character of Jesus who even in his celebrity status stops what he's doing to listen to somebody from the crowd. Jesus, the Son of God, is not too busy or too important to listen to your prayers. He is mindful of those who cry out to him. And that's not changed since this event. In fact, he has promised uh, followers that he would give us his spirit to intercede on our behalf. So even when we don't know what to say to God, the spirit intercedes on our behalf. On our behalf. Remember Jesus' last words to his disciples. After he rose from the grave, uh, he commissioned them to go out into the world, and then he said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' presence among us and his omniscience, that he, that he knows all things, his knowledge of all things, is not in any way dependent on our feelings. So there may be times when you feel alone or unheard or uncared for, and perhaps you have actually been treated that way by sinful people in the world. That's going to happen in a fallen world. But when it comes to Jesus, those things are never true. He is the good shepherd. He is always with us. He cares for you. Rest in the care of the Almighty. I think I know everyone in this room, and to my knowledge, everyone in this room uh, professes faith in Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, but I still, because we hear these crazy stories about conversion, uh, I will still make an appeal for those, if, if you may be even in this room and you don't think you've actually really ever trusted Christ and called out to Him in faith, well then we were all once strangers to Christ. We were once all anonymous like this man. And when we cried out to Him, He heard us. If you've never done that, Do that today. Back to our story. The anonymous man from the crowd tells Jesus about his son. And his son is under a terrible affliction from a demon. And um, some critics of the Bible have said that the boy probably just had epilepsy, which is a a disorder in the brain that causes random seizures at random times. And that assumption is usually accompanied or that suggestion is, is usually accompanied with some kind of assumption that people in the first century didn't know how to tell the difference between d- demonic possession and other ordinary sicknesses because of a lack of scientific knowledge and medical knowledge, they would say. And it's possible that he had epilepsy, sure. But if you read the Gospels, you'll notice people had categories for things like sickness, Things like a fever or skin disease or a handicap and demon possession. So they were not so primitive and unaware that they assumed that everything was some kind of spiritual dark force afflicting you because you have sinned or something like that. 
But they could tell, and perhaps even with greater accuracy than we can today, when there is a supernatural wicked force at play. The boy didn't just have seizures. He foamed at the mouth. He grinded his teeth. And it even made him mute. Jesus rebukes the demon later. He calls him mute and deaf, so I think he couldn't hear or speak. It's a dreadful situation. And so the man tries to bring his son to Jesus. And and he says, he asked his disciples, because Jesus wasn't there. He asked his disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't. They were not able to. Literally, they were not strong enough. And we might read this and think, well, of course. Have you ever met these guys? Do you have any idea how thick-headed they are? They're obviously not Jesus. We get used to watching the disciples fail over and over again uh, when reading through the Gospels. But don't forget that Jesus actually did give his disciples authority and specifically to cast out demons. Back in chapter 6, he sent them on a a short-term trip to the villages nearby. And in chapter 6, verse 13, it says that he gave them the authority to cast out many demons and they healed those who were sick. So what's going on? How come they couldn't cast this demon out? Well, Jesus answers precisely in verse 29. But before we get to his answer, let's just look at Jesus' response to the man in verse 19. It says, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Ouch. Seems a little extreme, don't you think, Jesus? To call the entire generation faithless? And who exactly is he talking to in that group? Uh, you might think the scribes, since he's, but he's, he's not really talking to them. So I, I don't think he's directly talking to them or them only, at least. I think he's just talking to the whole group generally. You might remember when the Bible refers to a generation like this, that it often is some kind of hidden reference to a very famous generation in the Old Testament, the wilderness generation. It's the generation that was called wicked and sinful in Deuteronomy 32 and unbelieving in Numbers 14 when they doubted the promise of God. Uh, They're the generation that grumbled in the wilderness. Remember that Jesus just went up, previous to this, he just went up the mountain and had a Sinai-like experience, except instead of meeting with the glory of God, he himself shines as the glory of God, with Moses and Elijah there to testify to him. And now he comes down from the mountain to see the people acting in unbelief. It reminds me of Moses coming down from Sinai to see the people worshiping a golden calf, trying to get the blessings of God from something other than God. That's what the disciples and the crowd and the Father are all trying to do as well in this story. The disciples trusting in their own ability to heal the boy and the boy's father, hoping in the disciples to heal him, or at least maybe assuming that they you know, have the same power as Jesus, they're on par with him. And the scribes likely using the disciples' inability to support their arguments, their unbelief against Jesus. All of this makes Jesus groan inwardly. He is tired of their faithlessness. And so he asks them, how long? He says, how long are are we going to do this? How long do I have to put up with you? How long will I be with you? Which, one, means he's already been putting up with them for quite some time. 
And it's a rhetorical question, but we know that the answer to it is not long. Right? I believe Jesus is about two years into his three-year ministry at this point. And so we're on our way to Jerusalem. He's, he's headed to the cross. He doesn't have a lot of time with them left. He says, bring the boy to Jesus. So they bring the boy. And just like in other instances with demons involved, the demon immediately recognizes Jesus and begins to thrash about. And while he's convulsing on the ground and foaming at the mouth, Jesus, what does he do? Does he rush down immediately to save the boy? No. He turns and asks the boy's father, how long has this been happening? And he says, from childhood. We don't know how old the boy is, but many years is my guess. That's the, that's the idea here. Many years having to watch his son attacked and unable to get any help. Unable to do anything about it. You know, I think if you're a parent here in the room, you know that the, the boy is not the only one in great pain in this situation. I think any, anyone who has their own child knows that when they go through some kind of pain or sickness, you would do just about anything to switch places with them. That's the pain that this father is carrying as well. Even worse for him, he can't even comfort the boy with his own words because he can't hear him. Think about the years of fear that this father would have lived through, not knowing if his boy would live through the night without something happening, not knowing if something would happen outside of his watch. You know, Jesus didn't have to ask him this question. He may have already knew. But maybe you even read it and wondered, what are you waiting for, Jesus? Heal the boy first and then ask questions. So what is Jesus doing? Is he playing spiritual doctor of some kind? Collecting you know, his medical history so that he knows the right situation and the kind of prescription to, to give? Well, I think Jesus is giving this man an opportunity to share his burdens and his prayers with Jesus. Because notice the man doesn't just stop and answer the question. He does at first, but he can't help but explain more. He could have just answered the question from childhood. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he adds, and it has often cast him into fire and into water trying to destroy him. It's like he's saying, we've been through so much. Please, I just want you to know, I can't take any more. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. And when Jesus says that all things are possible for the one who believes, the man cries out in perhaps one of the most vulnerable and yet honest prayers in the Bible. I believe. Help my unbelief. He says, Jesus, I know my faith is weak. Please help me. Jesus just pointed to their faithlessness a minute ago. And this man seems to be the only one who recognizes it within himself and admits it. And when Jesus heard him say, if you can, I don't think that, and when Jesus repeated his words, if you can, I don't think Jesus was taking any kind of offense to it. We may read it like that at first, but he's not responding as if his authority or power is threatened or belittled in any way. He's pointing out that all things are possible to the one who believes, even if that faith is the size of a mustard seed. No human will ever have perfect belief. 
So long as we live in sinful bodies and in a sinful world, we will be a work in progress. But we assume that something is wrong with us if we have any doubts at all, don't we? And this is where the main idea of the weakness of our faith comes in. First, the man hoped the disciples would heal his son, which in some ways, you know, I don't really blame him for. He was probably desperate to try anything. But now he's at the end of his rope asking if Jesus can do anything. He seems to only have just a sliver of faith left. But what does he do with that sliver of faith? As weak as he may be, he recognizes the frailty of his faith and he cries out to Jesus. With that mustard seed-like faith, he risks everything and hopes that Jesus can help. And so he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, it is not the strength of our faith that saves us. It is not the power of our own desires that God honors. It is dependence on His strength. Faith is recognizing our own weaknesses and trusting in something outside of us. Faith is relying on God because we don't have the power to save ourselves. This man's faith was better than those around him because he was the weakest. Not that weakness alone gains God's pity, but in his weakness, he bet everything on Jesus. Not only that, he recognized his weakness. He felt that his faith was weary. That he was so close to giving up completely and perhaps afraid to do so. But it was from that place of weakness that he asked for Christ's power. It's no different for us when it comes to faith. Uh, There's a lot of bad teaching out there that teaches you that if you only believe hard enough and pray long enough, if you want something bad enough, then you can receive or do or accomplish anything. It's called prosperity teaching. And prosperity teachers say that if you just trust God and think positively, you'll be blessed. And all your problems in life will go away. Some of them even teach that God will give you whatever you ask for. It's, it's a horrible teaching. It treats God as some kind of genie that has to honor us if we achieve a certain level of godliness. But friends, it's not the power of our faith that saves us. It's in our weakness that God's power is displayed. Let's move on to point two. The strength of Christ's power. The strength of Christ's power. Because that's really what we need to see as most important in this text. Uh, Those bad teachers that I was just talking about, they actually will cite Jesus' response, this exact verse, and use it as a proof text, which is a horrible handling of God's Word because it not only just rips the verse right out of context, but they use it to communicate the exact opposite thing that Jesus was trying to communicate. Jesus is not saying that we can do anything if we have faith. He's saying that He can do anything for those who have faith, even in the smallest amounts. He's saying all things are possible to the one who believes, not because they want it badly enough, but because of where the power comes from. The man asks, if you can do anything. And Jesus responds saying, it's not a matter of if. It's not a matter of ability. I can do anything. 
I created the world. I know all things. I uphold the universe by the word of my power even while I'm in the weakness of this humanity. The point of Jesus' statement is not that if we have strong enough faith, we can do anything. It's, it, it's if we have any faith at all in Him, anything can happen because He's capable of everything. And so faith is only as good as the thing that you're trusting in. And that's true of anything. You can't adjust the power of something based on the strength of your own desire or trust in it. Uh, Kevin DeYoung has a really good illustration for uh, faith that I think applies well here. He, he likens it to an extension cord. And you know, you know an extension cord, they come in all different kinds of shapes and sizes. You have just the little white ones that basically have one outlet. You've got those thicker power strips that you can plug four or five things into all at once. And then you've got those beefy orange ones that go hundreds of feet, kind of like this one right here. And you plug your power tools in that, right? You, you plug your weed whacker in that to do some yard work. Well, friends, those cords, no matter how thick or strong or heavy-duty they might be, are completely useless if they're not connected to any kind of power source. Your little three-foot phone charger is going to transfer more electricity if it's plugged into a wall than any one of those really thick and beefy cords. And so Jesus is saying, even for those with weak and small faith, if it's connected to Jesus, he can do all things. The Apostle Paul is my favorite example of weakness in the Bible when it comes to faith. Uh, I doubt anyone, first off, would ever actually say that the Apostle Paul is weak. What does it say about you if you think the Apostle Paul is weak, right? He suffered greatly. And he said that he had a thorn in his flesh. And he begged God three times to remove it. I'm pretty sure he prayed those things earnestly with all his might. And he said the answer that God gave him was not to remove the thorn, but that his grace was sufficient for him. And Paul realized that he could be content knowing that God's power was made perfect in his weakness. That in Paul's weakness, the power of God was displayed in sustaining him physically and giving him contentment and joy in life. So brothers and sisters... Do you feel like you have strong faith? Or do you feel like your faith is weak? And what's your response to either one? Uh, You may feel like your faith is strong. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But beware of making the mistake of the disciples. And it's, that's when it's easiest to trust in your own ability, in my, in my experience. If you feel weak, recognize you're not alone. You're in the the company of this hopeless father in our text and the Apostle Paul. And Jesus comes through big time for both of them. God's faithfulness is not dependent on our circumstance. There are plenty of people, even in this room, who have a significant thorn in their flesh. And it may be hard to, to, to imagine lasting a whole lot longer dealing with it, right? For those who are facing that, that kind of difficulty, uh, I would just say, don't think about the distance that you have to go. 
Just tomorrow's going to worry for itself. Tomorrow has its own troubles. Just get through the day. Trust Jesus today. He will carry you through. His grace is sufficient for you. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon our circumstances and it's not dependent upon our strength or the strength of our faith. And thank goodness that that's the case. Because if it were, I don't think any one of us would actually remain faithful. And so we can say with the psalmist, my flesh and my heart and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm seventy three, twenty six. Kids in the room, there's a few of you here. One thing I want you to, to hear from this sermon is that Jesus is the strongest person you will ever know. There's going to be people in your life who will inevitably fail you. Uh, It may be friends. It will most likely be family members as well. But Jesus will never fail you. You can trust in Him. Back to Jesus and the demon. It's amazing that every time we read about a demon in the Gospel of Mark, the demon immediately recognizes Jesus. Jesus has a celestial reputation as well. He's not just a celebrity here on earth, but in heaven. Um, People here may have a hard time seeing Jesus for who he really is, but demons know exactly who he is. And the instant they see him, they know he's in control, that he has the power and authority over them, and so they fear. And notice the way that Jesus casts the demon out of the boy in verses 25 and 26. It says, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. And here we see the power of Jesus. To encounter a demonic spirit that no man could cast out previously, and to command it to come out and never return... And notice, there's no battle at all. There's no struggle. Jesus' explanation to the disciples in verse 29 is a little confusing uh, because it sounds as though there are some demons that are stronger than others. And so this must have been a particularly strong demon. But for Jesus, it doesn't matter whether it is a legion of demons or a really strong one All it takes is a simple command from Jesus and the demon has no choice but to leave the boy. This text is full of hints at Jesus' divinity, by the way. First, he indicts the people in a way that sounds or reflects the way God does to unbelieving Israel in the wilderness. And then he explains later that some demons can only be driven out by prayer. Well, guess who just cast out the demon and didn't pray? In the same exact set of verses, Jesus rebukes his disciples and the people for their faithlessness and not praying. And then he performs the actions that can only be done by the power of God who they were supposed to pray to. Jesus, being merciful, heals the boy. And and the way he heals him uh, even points to his power over death and resurrection. The boy appeared dead Some people even think he actually was dead. If he was, they would probably use the exact same language, just so you know. 
There's no, not really any way to know for sure. But it's not like it would be a surprise to us. He's raised people from the dead before we've seen. But this very miracle is what also happens to sinners who trust in Christ. The Bible says that we are dead in our sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the love with which He loved us made us alive with Christ. And He raises us up. And when someone becomes a Christian, they are raised by Christ from the dead to new life and then brought into the family of God. Through Christ, we have access to our Father in heaven. What a beautiful display of God's power and Christ's mercy in us in this miracle. Notice the boy, after having the demon, the the mute and deaf spirit removed, would have been able to then communicate with his father. In the same way that when we are made alive in Christ, we commune with the Father through Christ. And that leads me to point three. The importance of prayer. The importance of prayer. Uh, This point is basically just a point of application based on the previous two points. And it's taken with all things considered. The the disciples were still confused as to why they couldn't cast out the demon and so... Uh, Like they have before, they wait until a a situation where they're in private with Jesus. They ask him about it, and he responds in a curious way. He says that this kind can only be driven out by prayer. And if you're like me, then uh, you you have all kinds of questions about demons that you want answered. But Jesus is not giving them a lesson on demonology at this point. He's pointing out their blind spot, which means they obviously didn't even think to pray when they were trying to cast the demon out. And, you know, we might think that that's just ridiculous, but I'll just tell you, there are so many times where I catch myself trying to do something and then, and then kind of embarrassingly realize that I haven't even prayed yet. Uh, I, will, I will study for hours trying to think about what to say next in a sermon and then realize, why have I not prayed about this? I need to pray. Because what is prayer if not faith acted out? What is prayer if not an expression of faith? By definition, prayer is calling out to God in reliance and requesting His help. It assumes His power. Jesus is calling them out as faithless because of their lack of prayer. Brothers and sisters, if you want to find a way to measure the strength of your faith, take a look at your prayer life. Is it possible to have faith and yet never pray? Think about that question for a little bit. Prayer can sometimes be a last resort for many of us. Uh, A Hail Mary, pun intended. And that's just it. Prayer is coming to the end of our own abilities. It's realizing that the situation is in God's hand and not in ours. But many of us, we, we don't realize that until we're forced to, until we're brought low. Like this man, we don't realize it until we've run out of every other option. And so all we know is to pray. Our faith is drained by every other false hope that we've trusted in up to that point. But friends, the man and the disciples and, and us, we need to recognize That our situation is always in God's hand from the very beginning. Unlike those who are far off, we know God's character. We know God's power and we know that we have His ear. So why would we do anything 
apart from relying on His sovereign power. The quicker we are to recognize our weaknesses, the more we will be driven to God in prayer. Now, you may be tempted to think that I trust in God and, you know, I don't have an amazing prayer life, but things are pretty good right now. And if, if I ever meet a significant obstacle in life, then I will pray a lot. That's when, that's when I'll see how strong my faith is. But if you don't pray over the little things in life, how do you know that you're going to pray over the big things in life? John Bunyan, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, second most famous book in the world next to the Bible. He said that he who runs from God in the morning will scarcely find him the rest of the day. If prayerlessness equals faithlessness, then it's simple. We must pray. We must depend on Christ all the more because we are weak. But the weakness of our faith is not stronger than the power of Christ. You might even say that weak faith is faith of the strongest kind because it recognizes how helpless we are apart from Christ. Most of the Christians I know who have been Christians for a long time pray more than other Christians I know, but they consider themselves to have much weaker faith than those who are younger. I think we get this idea for some reason that, you know, when you first become a Christian, uh, faith is hard and it's difficult. And then, but later on, once your, your faith is strong and mature, things will be fine and you'll never have any doubts. I'm not sure where we get that idea. I actually think that most likely it's more the opposite. I think early on it's a little bit easier. And then as you walk more along in life, you realize how narrow the road is and how difficult it is and how badly you need to rely on God. So Christian, don't be discouraged if your faith is weak. Let your weaknesses point to the all-sufficient power of Christ, whose grace is sufficient for us all. For when you are weak, then you are strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would have mercy on us, sinners. Help us to see clearly how desperately we need your grace. Help us to see our unbelief clearly like this man did. Help us to rest on your sovereign care like a pillow. And by our weakness, may your glory be displayed. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.